uh, a number of years ago, must, must be 15 years ago uh, in, in our church in Glasgow uh, when we were there. There was a, a new guy started to come. His name was Scott. Scott had been in uh, addiction for most of his life from uh, a teenager onwards. But he'd been at a rehab center. We'd uh, got in touch with him, and he'd been on rehab, and he came back. And on one of the first Sundays that he came back, we were having an open testimony time. And uh, he stood up, and uh, he told us a little bit about his life in rehab and how God had wonderfully spoken to him and saved him and delivered him uh, from his addiction. Uh, and Scott was, he always had a, a story that, that was, he had an amazing way of telling stories, so I'm never going to do justice to it. But uh, he told the story, I'm not sure if it's true or not, to be honest, but he told us this story, that um, there was a week when he was awarded a prize uh, for being the most humble resident of the rehab. And he was given a badge as a result of this. And then he got the badge taken off him for wearing it. <laughs> now, now, I'm not altogether sure whether the story was true, but um, I feel a little bit like Scott in that story today when preaching about humility. How do you, how do you preach about humility? And so I, I come to you as a learner, um, not as an expert. And I certainly don't want my badge taken off me, whatever badge that might be. Because humility is not an easy road. And it's difficult to know how to talk about it. But the bottom line is we have to talk about stuff that's in the Scriptures, and this is in the Scriptures. And so we're going to be looking at the whole idea of humility, self-humbling. Two, two years ago, around about this time of year, we were preaching a series through our core values, and one of our values was humble unity. And we focused in on a little phrase that we crafted called kneeling towards rising together to capture this humble unity. That if we really want to see unity, we have to First, learn humility, that sense of kneeling towards one another in humility so that we can rise together. Not just the individual kneeling so they can rise, but rising together, humble unity. And the passage that we looked at was John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And in that chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, we, we read this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Wow, that's, that's huge. That the Father had put all things under his power. What's, what's Jesus going to do with this power? And then the next thing we read, read is, so he got up and washed the disciples' feet. What, what, would, what would you do if you were given all power? Well, Jesus' evidence is humility. He kneels towards his disciples that they might rise together. That's what he does with all this power. Kneeling towards the relinquishing of power, of honor, of position, of status, that would ultimately lead him to the death of a criminal, death on a cross. Humility. 
And that's what Jesus invites us into. The pathway of humility. To humble ourselves. And wonderfully in that humility, a different kind of power emerges for the world. A different type of power. A a beautiful power brought by humility. And at the center of this passage this morning is the power of humility, which is interesting given that the heart of humility is relinquishing power. So let's read. And I want to read just a few verses from chapter 3 before we go into chapter 4. So let's start at, at, at chapter 3, verse 17, three to, through to chapter 4, verse 3. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And and even just that, that's Fred took us there a couple of weeks ago. All, All that beautiful language of mercy and peace and consideration and submission reaping a a harvest of righteousness. Beautiful language. And then we go into verse 4, and and it flips very quickly. So having spoken about peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness, he then goes on to address what must have been a problem across the communities that he is writing to. What causes fights and quarrels among you? I mean, it's a bit of a contradiction having just gone through all of this about godly, divine wisdom and peacemaking, and then he's straight in with, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, just pause there. From his encouragement to peace and humility and mercy, James now challenges the presence of division and conflict within the church. While the church and the community should have been sowing peace, it it seems that quarreling and division were being sown instead, that anger and hostility were being fueled out of desires. What I want, what we want. And there was no humility. It was a power struggle that was fueling anger and hostility and sowing quarreling and division, inciting hatred and perhaps even violence. I think we have to read this passage understanding that James may well be talking about aggression to such a level that there was violence within the church. Now, not just focused on that, but but that the conflict within was so strong that it wasn't just the the pitting of arguments against one another, but it was breaking out. It was fueling hostility and anger, even hatred and perhaps violence. 
And the underlying cause? Power. We will do whatever it takes to get whatever we want and whatever we think. The problem with power. And these conflicts and disputes could have been verbal or physical. And sadly, physical violence and murder is not a stranger to church history or religious history or even the religious presence and present. I find it somewhat ironic that this is the passage that was set in place when there's violence in the Middle East, a place that is soaked in its religions. And these seem to be driven from desires and cravings. Now the word for desire and cravings or wants is the word head on eye. Not immediately. I mean, you'll probably recognize the word hedonism that comes from head on eye. <coughs> Excuse me. But it might not just be focused on a type of hedonism where everyone just does what they want. But rather, it's a longing for power and control and partisanship, what we want, that is creating discord and dispute and division and destruction. It's the longings for power to have it our way, irrespective of anybody else's. Fights and quarrels, it, James says, comes from your desires that battle or are at war within you. What does that mean? Well, it could mean desires that battle within you personally, like Romans 7, Paul talks about, why do I keep on doing the things I, can't, I do not want to do, and the things I want to do, these I cannot do. You ever experienced that? Well, you know what the right thing is, but there's this desire within you that longs for something else and takes you in the wrong direction. It could be the desires that are within us internally, that wrestling. But it could also be the desires that are within the body. Wanting power in a particular way or direction. And it is in humbling ourselves before God that we lay down our rights, our right to power, our rightness. It's in humbling ourselves that we say, Lord, whatever the warring bits are within us, Lord, we want to break them, you to break them so that we can come into line with you. And the language of these verses is really quite strong. In verse 2, it talks about murder. You desire but do not have, so you murder, you kill. And we could understand this through the lens of Matthew 5, 21 and 22 from the Sermon on the Mount. This, this whole section of Scripture has almost grabbed about 50% of the Sermon on the Mount and tried to cram it into uh, one passage. And in that Matthew 5, 21 and 22, it talks about murder and anger being equivalent. You've heard that it is said, do not murder. But I say to you, don't be angry 
with a brother or a sister. As, as if these two somehow uh, equate, because in anger, we go on to destroy, and at times, some even to murder. And in James' passage here, whether it's thinking about real violence that brings about murder, or, or whether it's just the desire of, of people within this, these churches to put away or discredit others, to bring them to an end one way or another, to exclude or eliminate or whatever, what, what today we might call othering. We discredit by othering people to put them away thinking that only our perspective is correct. And so we come with a place of power and that somehow everyone else is wrong. But it's not inconceivable that a literal translation is also in mind. A fanatical, zealous factions in the church that were indeed open to violence to protect their way or the way they see the world. Even the word covet that's in there uh, is, comes from the word uh, zealous, zealot. Zealous coveting. Such a longing, such a drive for power and control that everything must be the way that I see it or we see it. That that zealous coveting or envy would lead not just to anger, but to violence, to quarreling and fighting. Scott McKnight, a commentator writing on this particular section of James, he writes this, zeal, ambition, cravings, and desires ruled their hearts and prevented them from having the very thing required of one who grows into godly wisdom, humility. All kinds of zeals and ambitions and cravings and desires ruled their hearts. But what they lacked was humility. For them, it seemed all about power. And so their asking is being shaped by their desires and their ambition. Their asking of God were about their own desires and ambitions. Their power, how they thought should things have been not God's. They come, as James says, with the wrong motive. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives because they didn't come with humility. It's almost like they were saying, this is the way things are. This is the way we will make them happen. God, could you just come from wherever you are and make sure this happens here so that you can legitimize us and delegitimize everyone else. Their motives were all wrong. There was no humility in their asking. And so as a result of that, there was conflicts and quarrels, maybe even aggression and violence because it was power that was driving them, not humility. It's the wrong motive. God, would you align with my ways rather than aligning me with your ways. Not only are they asking with wrong motives, but they're simultaneously in their prideful asking, 
is that they're feeding. They're feeding that pride. They're feeding that greed. They're feeding that power, that desire, those ambitions as they continue to ask out of wrong motives. So actually, they're strengthening the pride and the power that they are desiring rather than finding a way to humility. James talks about them. They've spent all their requests, even if they're unaware, in the wrong direction. What they want, not what God wants. They, they should have asked for godly wisdom out of a place of humility rather than assuming their own wisdom was right and asking God to bless. In the end, they were seeking the increase of their own world, one of power and position and control and status, not the new world in Christ, which was the way of peace and humility. The battle between power and humility. And humility's power can only be found when we let go of our places of power and control and that we humble ourselves before God. And it'll not just be good for us. And it'll not just be good for God. It'll be good for everybody around about us. So I'm speaking to myself here and I'm saying, Lord, teach me what it means to humble myself before the Lord. For your glory, for my sake, and for the sake of those that are around me. Well, James goes on. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, right in the middle of this passage, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And James uses two relationship images here to make a point about the seriousness of all this. He, he, he draws on a marriage relationship and a friendship relationship. Being friends with the world, their world, the world that they were in, means that actually they weren't united to Christ's new world. They were still operating in the ways of the old world. And Jesus came to flip the power balance. But they were still living in the old ways. Their allegiance was misdirected to pride and power, not to humility and peace and love. But what does James mean by the world? Well, he means the zeal, the ambition, the craving, the desires for power and control, for pride. They were still operating in those ways. In truth, they want what this world wants. How easily that seeps into our life. But we're to relinquish power through humility. That has its own power. So their world that James is talking about was akin to their world without Christ. 
because it was focused on their own power, ambition, self-serving. There was nothing of humility. They had fostered friendship, allegiance, alliance with the ways of power within the world, not the ways of humility within Christ's world. Friendship. How easily it can creep in with the world. And then he draws on the marriage that somehow the people of God that he's writing to have been unfaithful in their union and relationship with Christ. That image of a marriage between um, Christ and his people, between God and his people. And the infidelity had occurred in the people of God to Christ. And so James, I mean, he's wild. Emma, Emma told us a couple of weeks ago about reading James is like a punch in the guts for the people of God. So what does he say? He says, adulterous people, adulterers. He talks about this adultery leading them to hostility with God, that they, instead of being the bride of Christ, they were actually enemies of God. But it appears they've been utterly unaware of it. They didn't even recognize it within themselves. In, such, in fact, such is their passion for their own way. They have sought to align God with it. They bring God to bless their thing. When in fact, their stance is one of hostility, an enemy of God. How tragic. You adulterous people, James says. Now, I, I had a question when I read this. Because um, I, I, I thought Emma's talk on taming the tongue a couple of weeks ago was fantastic. And I thought, James, <laughs> you've just been writing about taming the tongue. And here you go, unleashing our all adulterous people. How does this square with James's language of taming the tongue and not judging? Can his language be justified? Well, with this chastisement... His purpose is to grab the attention of the people who are reading or listening to this. To grab their attention to the seriousness of the matter in hand and its destructive potential. That pride and power always leads to destruction. And he's saying this is serious. This is destructive. Power and pride. God opposes, but he lifts up and gives favor to the humble. God opposes the pride, but gives favor to the humble. And that theme of adultery in the people of God is a, a biblical theme. You find it in the Old Testament, specifically in Hosea, where the intimacy of marriage is the image and the metaphor for faithfulness and fidelity between God's people and God. God is faithful, but Somehow the people seem to be unfaithful over and over again. But in James's letter, he's saying that fidelity has been broken. God's people have gone their own way. They've sought their own way. They've sought the power and the pride. And they've put distance between themselves and their God. And instead of intimacy with God, they've created hostility. And some of them don't even know it. They've become enemies of God and they don't even know it. What tragedy. 
What loss? What heartbreak? Is there hope? Is there hope? Of course there's hope. Verse 5 and and 6 that we read, a better translation probably to the original Greek is found in the Good News translation. Now, honestly, I don't often use the Good News translation to back up the Greek, but I am today. It, It reads like this. Don't think that there is no truth in the Scripture. The Spirit that God placed in us is filled with fierce desires, but the grace that God gives is even stronger. As the Scripture said, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, I think that captures better the, 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 the Greek. And what is really saying, James is really saying, is this, the, the spirit, the human spirit that is within us has this tendency towards pride, to be filled with fierce desires. But no matter how fierce they are, the grace that God gives is even stronger. Hallelujah. The, the, the desires that are within us, those human desires that create that internal, personal wrestling or alternatively create those collective wrestlings where there's conflict and, and where there is fighting even amongst the believers. However strong they are, grace is stronger. Thanks be to God. So some of us need to hear that. Whatever it is that the wrestling is within you or around you, grace is stronger. Where sin abounds, Paul said, grace abounds all the more. Thanks be to God. And where is grace found? In humility before the cross of Christ. Humbling ourselves before him. We can't demand grace. We find it in a posture of humility. Grace here is the grace of forgiveness, which requires repentance to really receive its benefits. And repentance requires self-humbling. And in that act of self-humbling and repentance, grace and forgiveness is given. And in that forgiveness, grace does its own work and continues to lead us to submission, full submission to God. Grace is stronger. The grace that God gives is stronger than the wrestling that might be in our hearts or in our church or in communities, even in nations. And it's in self-humbling that grace is found. That's why it's so important. And as we find that grace, then we can go on into James 4 verse 7, because it will lead us to this. Submit yourselves then to God. Realigning with God in humility. Submit yourselves then to God. And there we receive grace and grace strengthens us so that we can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Now there's an important thing that's happening in these few verses. There's a submission to God where we are aligned to him and grace does its work and we're strengthened. 
as we are strengthened, we resist the devil. We make that choice to resist the devil when there's temptation, when there's struggle. And we flee from them. We don't just resist them. We flee. Remember preaching on this verse a number of years ago in, in a, uh, with an organization that focused on addiction. And in Glasgow, we call this, it's time to bolt. There are times when we need to just get out of a circumstance or a situation and leave before we fall. We've got to bolt. It's not just resist. It's flee when we see trouble coming. That will be trouble for us. Flee. But then it's not just that we leave something. As we leave something, we must enter something. We must enter the new. And the new is closeness to God. So we resist the devil. We flee from him. That's leaving. But what do we go to then if we're leaving? Well, we come near to God. And he will come near to us. If all we're doing is just battling in our own self, well, we will struggle. We've got to draw near to God. We've got to enter the new of his presence. As he comes near to us, proximity with God is everything. Closeness with God is everything. That intimacy that James's heroes had lost needs to be rediscovered again. So we resist and we flee, but we enter into intimacy with God where we are strengthened. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Fresh start. Washing of hands. Purifying of hearts. In the intimacy of our relationship with God, grace is still more powerful than whatever it is that we wrestle with. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is James saying? He's saying, this is serious. You know, there have been times where my wrestle has meant I have had to disappear. Sometimes even for a few days just to seek God to break the power of something in me that needed to be broken. Where I would grieve and mourn and wail literally and i would change that front that i'm so good of putting on of laughter to mourning and joy to gloom because it's serious but in doing so then we humble ourselves before the lord and james has this beautiful word humble yourself before the lord and he will lift you up grace is stronger Grace is strong. And as we humble ourselves, God lifts us up so that we can face whatever we're facing. And when we humble ourselves and the Lord lifts us up, we see ourselves differently from this place of humility. And not only do we see ourselves differently, but we see others differently, one another differently, our neighbor differently. Humility restrains the tongue in slander and in judgment and we live differently with ourselves and with others. So that James can go on to conclude, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge. 
the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? See, what happens is in that place of humbling ourselves, we take on a new heart, a new posture, and a new perspective. And in our, self, in our being humble, we receive grace that makes us see everything else differently. And we enter those other relationships and places with humility, not with power. And when we enter with humility, it has its own power that is different. It's kingdom power. Humility's power. This final part of this section really reflects that comical picture that Jesus tells in the Sermon on the Mount. You might not have known that Jesus was a comic. But in Matthew 7, he's really creating a comical picture about a guy called Plankface. Perhaps you are beginning to imagine the passage of Scripture that I'm referring to when Jesus says, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I mean, it's ridiculous. Plank face. Dirty, great, big, bitter wood sticking out your eye as you try and point out the speck of dust in the other person's eye, smacking them with a bit of wood every time you lean forward to point out the speck of dust in theirs. I mean, it's, it is comedy. But Jesus is saying, when we are focused on something where we think we're the ones who are in the place of power, rather than humbling ourselves, we're like plank face. And we cause more damage with all our swinging around and pointing the finger. Instead, we need to take the plank out of our own eye. And humbling ourselves, self-humbling, is that process where we, along with the Lord, allow the planks in our own eyes to be removed. When we assume the place of humbling ourselves, we're changed. Our heart is changed. Our perspective is changed. Our posture is changed. And humility is formed within us. And we begin to live in humility's power rather than just in power. Friends, God invites me to humility over pride. God loves for me to receive grace over my own greed that things should be my way. And God desires close intimacy over enmity or separation. And we find it as we humble ourselves before the Lord. He opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. Therefore, humble yourself and he will lift you up. Shall we pray? I invite the worship team to come forward. Lord, I thank you that grace is always stronger than the desires within us. Grace is always greater than the sin that is in our life. 
Lord, I thank you that even in wrestling through this subject in my own heart, thank you for the gift of grace. And so, Lord, I come again with my brothers and sisters in Christ to humble myself and ourselves before the Lord that you might lift us up. And Lord, I pray that you would break in me the desires that war towards power and pride and ambition that is not of you. Instead, you would form humility within me, that willingness to kneel towards that we might rise together with one another. Form Christ within us by your grace. And thank you that the power of grace is found as we humble ourselves before God in confession, in repentance, in intimacy, in humbling ourselves. There we find grace. And thank you, Lord, that that grace is greater than all our sin. Thanks be to God. So friends, as we sing in these moments about the grace of God, let me invite you again. Humble yourself before the Lord that you might be lifted up into greater humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.